I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. It's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 60, we read The Conservatarian Manifesto by Charles Cook, published in 2015. Charles Cook was born in 1984 and raised in Cambridge, England. He studied modern history and politics at Oxford University. He immigrated to the United States in 2011 and became a U.S. citizen in 2018. He serves as editor of NationalReview.com and co-host of the Mad Dogs and an Englishman podcast. Charles is a frequent guest on cable network news channels. We see him all the time. He lives in Florida with his wife and two sons. So if I think for us, this book kind of continues our treatment of the Republican slash conservative coalition. Recently, we discussed the fusion of conservatives and libertarians as advocated by Frank Meyer. I think we did that a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Well, this book doesn't necessarily discuss fusionism per se, but the reality of Meyer's vision is definitely implied. You have the two groups, libertarians, conservatives, that kind of form the, the coalition. So conservatarian that we'll jump into in depth here is kind of the next logical progression in that what Cook wants to do is combine those two elements into one coherent framework, you know, as opposed to Frank Meyer saying, we need both of these elements we need both groups inside the coalition for a winning coalition. I think Cook is going to say here, well, actually, over time, it's basically been combined. And the a Reagan conservative has holds views that are that fall within the traditionalist group as well as the libertarian. So conservatarians, he says, conservatives and libertarian labels traditionally are used to describe the two strongest building blocks of the right co rights coalition. Most of what ails America can and by rights should be fixed by the conservative movement, and he sees it through combining these these two. And like many books, maybe most books that we read, that we read on this podcast, he says, this book is about a party and a philosophy that has lost its way. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's 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 interesting because I mean, in the time since since Meyer was writing in National Review in the '60s, in between then and now, we had Reagan sort of bring that vision of conservatism and libertarianism combined into the White House and into the national consciousness. And it, and you know, Charles Cook writes here that you know Reagan halted the advance of progressivism, which had kind of just been getting more and more and more since Franklin Roosevelt's day, but he didn't really turn it back. And I think that's that's kind of the next step we're looking for. Is, you know, our government didn't get much bigger under Reagan, and to the extent it did, it was Cold War defense spending that later was dialed back after we won. But you know, we are still looking at at the the way to govern the country through the sort of Roosevelt New New Deal vision. You know, of more power in Washington. You know, more agencies, bureaucracies, unaccountable administrative rulemakings and, and, you know, things like that. So, you know, it, and then 
you know, by the time we get to Obama, then we have another big expansion of government, which, you know, the current Republican president and when he had a Republican Congress didn't really roll back in any appreciable fashion. Mm-hmm. So in writing in the 2015, Charles says federal taxes could be raised to record levels. The property of all millionaires could be summarily confiscated and the entire department of defense could be eliminated. But if we continue on our present course, our social spending would still bankrupt the federal government. I think that's no one's talking about deficits anymore, especially now, now in the, in this pandemic, all we're talking about is how much money to pump out the front door, mm-hmm. which, you know, I, there's reasons for that this year, but there wasn't really a reason for it last year, you know? And while you get people on the left crying about the military budget being too big, points out here that when Obama came to office, even before Obamacare started, social spending was 61% of our budget. Military spending was 22%, which is sort of the reverse of what it was in the days when Meyer was writing and when Eisenhower and Kennedy were in the White House. Mm-hmm. So I think conservatarian, Cook points out, is to the extent people were saying it, trying to make up a new word for what they were back when he was writing this, it was partly in an it was an expression of disappointment with what the conservative movement had done once it got power in Washington, which yeah. is, you know, I mean, there were, we shouldn't discount all those good things Reagan did. There were a lot of them, you know, but years on, you know, you say, all right, now what, you know, when, when do we start dialing this back? Like we've been talking about for decades now, when do we start pushing more power back to the States and to the people, you know, when do we start repealing some of these rules? And Trump's done some of that, although he, nobody talks about it. Mm-hmm. So I think the conservatarian idea is, you know, it's the label itself is also just sort of saying, yeah, I'm, I'm a conservative, a real one. Not like these guys in Washington who are just, you know, the right wing version of the, uh, the swamp creature that we've always had. Yeah. Well, this is the per- perennial criticism of, of Republicans or Tea Party conservatives, whatever, is that when Republicans are in power, you spend like a drunken sailor. When Democrats are in power, all of a sudden get religion on debts and deficit. Mm-hmm. And I'll be the first to admit that there is some truth to that. But I think just because it's not consistent doesn't mean it's not a real issue. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And I think right now nobody's, well, during COVID, to your point, we've we've spent over $4 trillion already. The most, the most recent package failed, uh, but that the Democrats wanted to go another $3.5 trillion. Republicans were holding firm as a bunch of misers at $1 trillion. <laughs> that just shows you where we're at right now, that, that you know, Republicans are misers because they don't only want to spend $1 trillion on. $1 on trillion, all of which is would be deficit spending. 100% deficit, exactly. Yeah, because we already spend more than we have. So this this yeah. would be 100% new spending with no revenue to make up for it. And yeah, and that's that's the... Yeah, that's the social, the uh, fiscal conservative position these days. Yeah, and and to follow on that, like this this is a this is a gotcha situation for Democrats too, right? Because they they love that we overspend in straight deficit spending because it also means well we're going to have to pay for that, which means we need to raise taxes <laughs> to get it mm. paid for. And I, I grant you that uh, there is some hypocrisy on the right in that let's just deficit spend and not not ever pay for it, but. Anyway, let's dive into more on what, more on Cook's uh, description of what is a conservatarian. He says, uh, he quotes his friend who says, 
when I'm around conservatives, I feel like a libertarian, but when I'm around my libertarian friends, I feel like a conservative. Well, I think it's probably instructive for us to talk a little bit about what is, what is a libertarian exactly? I think listeners probably have a strong idea. Some might not. Uh, I think we all have a pretty strong idea that at this point, if you listen to the podcast at all, what a conservative is, but what is a libertarian? Well, we have had some libertarian readings, uh, Ayn Rand, Mm-hmm. Obviously, libertarian Randy Barnett, uh, one of our Constitution episodes, um, Ludwig von Mises. Um, sometimes people will include Hayek, although I'm not sure that he actually was libertarian. But anyway, we'll set that aside. What what is a libertarian? Well, basically, these are the folks that their their primary concern is the maximization of individual freedom and autonomy. So every issue is evaluated through that rubric is does it does it create freedom does it maximize freedom does it maximize autonomy does it elevate individualism or not and contrast that with with let's say the traditionalist wing of even even mainstream conservatives well sometimes there there are other countervailing values so for example probably the top one and that libertarians are known for and certainly Cook is going to discuss that, and so we'll discuss it probably in a minute, but is drug control, um, mm-hmm. drug laws, where if we were concerned most with the maximization of freedom, then we would say, all right, you want to do heroin? Then go ahead and do it. And you want to sell it? Go ahead and sell it. Obviously, as many conservatives, and this comes from, I guess, the more traditional swing, but I would say the vast majority of mainstream conservatives would say, well, no, let's not do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of the some of the attitude is changing on marijuana, and but but when it comes to hard drugs like heroin and cocaine, I don't see any appetite among any conservatives to say let's let's legalize that. Well, in in actuality, that is a a restriction on individual freedom. You know, we are mm-hmm. saying like, father knows best. We are not going to let you do this. And so, for libertarians, they're like, hey, wait a minute, I thought you wanted to wanted to protect the individual and give, I thought you were all about freedom. And I guess traditional conservatives would be like, well, we are, but not always. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there are limits, you know, that's, that seems like something that's come up a lot when we're talking about the conservative side of things is there are limits. And, you know, uh, Cook talks about what, you know, the primary weakness of conservatism, he says, is that relying as it does on the Burkean presumption that society is that, society is the way it is for a reason it can refuse too steadfastly to adopt emerging social and political economic realities it can refuse it is apt to transmute solutions that were the utilitarian product of a proper of a particular time into articles of high principle so i think what he's saying is we get we get too wedded to tradition and that's why i think a lot you know resistance to marijuana legalization on the right i think a lot of it was wrapped up in the consensus of 100 years ago that liquor was one thing weed was another you know mm-hmm. and that's a lot of that's a that's not a consensus that's really built on any science or biology or you know it was just that respectable people might have a cocktail but you know only jazz musicians smoke weed you know so it was like <laughs> it, it was you know it was it was just what people what respectable opinion thought in 1900 isn't so much a principle but it's become one because when you do something long enough it becomes a principle you know it's like why do we have the national anthem before a ball game 
I don't know because we started doing it in World War II, but it's become so normal now that if you, it now that's the norm. And if you go to take it away, it's like whoa, whoa, you hate the flag? What's going on? You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whereas if you if you said in 1930, I don't think we should have the national anthem before a ball game. Most people will be like, yeah, you're right. That's why we don't have it. You know, <laughs> okay, you can do it another time. So yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a problem he points out with conservatives is we get wedded to the things that are, without really always deciding whether that's a principle that should be. Mm-hmm. He points out the weakness of libertarianism in that same on that same page and says they can become unreasonably ideological and unmoored from reality. At their very worst, libertarians can behave like Jacobins, disrespectful of tradition, convinced that logic on paper can answer all the important questions about the human experience, dismissive of history and cultural norms, possessed of a purifying instinct, and all too ready to pull down institutions that they fail to recognize are vital to the integrity of the society in which they wish to operate. Libertarians really have no respect for tradition at all. I mean, for them, I I like how he says... Uh, convinced that logic on paper can answer all the important questions. I think that's about right. The conservative, uh, the libertarians that I know, and certainly those that are have a, a media plat- platform, it's it's almost like they're playing Sim City. And if, I don't know if you know what I mean, but that mm-hmm. the game where you kind of like start from scratch and and build everything. You're the you're the model builder in Sim City or whatever, and you're you're creating it from nothing. And I think libertarians tend in my experience to start from that premise that this is the way that it should be if we were starting from the beginning and had nothing. And you're kind of like, that's an interesting thought experiment for like five minutes. And then we're faced with the, with the reality of how the world actually works and how the world actually is. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's where conservatives would push back on libertarians. Of course they would say, you know, you're incredibly inconsistent Sometimes you're for things, you know, and sometimes you're not where I think in politics, I think conservatism in general, but certainly many of us with a conservative temperament are usually a little skeptical of, of just so type of, you know, arguments where it's almost like our human brains want consistency, but at the same time, we kind of realize that, that in the real world, there's going to be trade-offs. There's going to be you're not going to be able to perfectly follow one single path. And, and when you, and for folks who do, they tend to be zealots and kind of like detached from reality, whether, whether it's Jacobins or even uh, religious uh, cult zealots or, and I think libertarians, I'm not saying that they're cults, but they definitely have a perspective on the world that they cared very deeply in my experience about, consistency there needs to be one one decision has to be incredibly consistent with the other so he says libertarians have a nasty tendency to start every discussion of policy with the pretense that both society and government are blank slates which they are not (laughs) and to pretend that one can apply libertarian solutions to a country and a government that is decidedly not libertarian which they cannot Libertarians reflexively defend anything that is said or done purely on the basis that it represents a free choice, regardless of whether it's a good choice. For example, how does this play out in the real world? Let's give a few examples. I think the uh, Colin Kaepernick kneeling for the flag, obviously the Democrats love that, but most conservatives don't like it. Libertarians, they're totally fine with it. I haven't, I, I almost haven't seen more social media posting of libertarians 
you know, bashing conservatives, Republicans on any other issue in my life as kneeling for the flag is again, they, they don't necessarily, most of them in my experience, at least don't really necessarily have much regard for tradition at all. And so whether you stand or salute the flag, they don't, they don't like symbols. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, so it's like the symbolic nature of kneel and standing for the flag and putting your heart over it. They just naturally don't like that. They feel uncomfortable with it. And so, so they're very critical of anyone who's critical of kneeling for the flag, for example. Yeah. I think um, we've, we've talked about utopianism in, in politics and I think conservatives are not, I mean, part of what makes them an American conservative is not being utopian. Um, but to the extent there's any utopianism in our movement, it comes from the the far reaches of the libertarians, not not just the ones who want a little less regulation, but the ones who want, you know, the ones who we sort of sometimes hold up as a straw man, but they're also real. You know, the ones who want to privatize roads and police and everything else, and, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I mean, they exist. That's not most people. I mean, but it that's not even most libertarians, I don't think. But it's it's a that is the utopian vision that most of us who consider ourselves conservative in any way are kind of against because we see, I mean, for all the reasons you said that the utopianism is a one size fits all thing. And that's progressives like that because they think they know best. Conservatism is often the humility to say, I, I don't know best for somebody I've never met and lives in a different town and has a different job and different kind of family than I have. You know, I, I don't know what's best for that guy. And Cook points out that, the, you know, the, on the left, they'll say, well, you don't, you know, you guys are, are attacking our vision, but you don't really have a, a competing vision. And he's like, well, it's not really that we don't have a competing vision. It's just that we don't think there is a vision for everybody on every issue. Yeah, I mean, we can we can all be Americans and, and you know, love this country. But that doesn't mean we all have to live in exactly the same way or have hold the same values, you know, beyond that. So it, that sort of, uh, that gets at the, at the, that, that's a real cleavage in the movement is, you know, to the, to what extent should we be, have this greater vision and be utopian? And to, to the extent that we're not, how can we fight a utopian vision like the progressives are putting out there where, you know, if we just do what they say, everything's going to be amazing and wonderful and there's no trade-offs. How do you fight that in the people's mind? Because people, a lot of people like someone who has all the answers. You know, they'll find out later the answers are not right, but it sounds good. You know, if you're if you're lost, if you're looking for answers, our idea of, well, you know, local traditions and, you know, median solutions and figuring things out through tradition, that doesn't sound as much, you know, you're not going to get on the barricades for that. But, yeah. you know, you'll get on the barricades for, you know, some radical idea, whether it be libertarianism or more likely uh, socialism. Yeah. Well, and so that unevenness and inconsistency infuriates libertarians. But I, as a side note, I, I always think this is funny because Democrats are never criticized for being, <laughs> I mean, they, it's almost like people recognize that maybe, maybe conservatives have more of a, um, a desire to, I don't know, think in terms of virtues versus, versus Democrats are just a coalition, a hodgepodge. And so as a result, like, uh, we're totally inconsistent. The only thing we're consistent about is spend more, you know, more <laughs> as, as he says, uh, Republicans will never outspend out bribe out activist out divide and out promise the democratic party. <laughs> I think that was pretty funny, but I, I think it's worth um, rattling off a few more just real world different 
it, how it plays out in the real world, the differences between libertarian and, and conservative, like traditionalists. So we talked about kneeling for the flag. We've talked about gun, uh, drug control. I think that in, in our present moment, libertarians are more hostile towards the police. They are definitely much more hostile when it comes to military force abroad. Uh, I think one of their main hobby horses is they, they hate drone strikes, which, you know, for a lot of us conservatives are like, I love drone strikes because it doesn't put any Americans at risk. Um, but the, the whole idea of, of America first, they hate that they're typically, if they're more extreme, they're in favor of just full open borders because here, here, here's a, one of their virtues that I, I find both admirable and completely insane. And that is, uh, that that's Maybe. libertarianism in the nutshell. Like, <laughs> but go on. <laughs> uh, they they view every human being as completely equal, but they take that to an and I think we all do. But he, they take that to extreme and say like, there should be no America first. Like that we should not we should not preference American citizens over other citizens. It's one of the reasons they hate drone strikes because they you know we would say definitely no drone strikes American against American uh, citizens, but go ahead and drone drone strike uh, terrorists in Yemen. Um, mm-hmm. But they would say, no, that, that person's life is worth just as much as any American. On a conceptual level, I think we all agree, but when it comes to just um, a radical dogmatic view, they, they hold that there is no right for America or any country to build a border. You know, if people want to come here, they should be able to come here. So this, this is radical individual freedom, where it's like everyone in the world, we're not just talking about Americans, have a perfectly equal right to be in America and to enjoy America. They have a perfectly equal right to all of the protections of the Fourth Amendment. Even terrorists, you know, killing killing Americans in, in Syria have the same, you know, Fourth Amendment rights, at least conceptually. And so as a result, like, you know, it, it can... It's both admirable because on the on the as I said on the conceptual level we I think all more or less agree, but it's completely insane too. And that, yeah, that's and that, just it, not how humans work. So. I think it gets to the blank slate idea too. You know, I mean, people who people within the right coalition who are against all the wars and want us to. I mean, it, it, and he says, you know, it's one thing to be against a certain war, but to be against all projection of American foreign policy force is. Again, it's sort of a utopian idea, you know, because it, on the one hand, they're saying, you know what, we sh- one country shouldn't be doing this. You know, it's not our business. What goes on in Yemen? How does it affect us? To some extent, that's true. I mean, if we were putting ground troops in Yemen, I think I'd be against it, too. I mean, because do we need to invade another country? Probably not. Yeah. Especially one that's been a mess forever. And it's been, I mean, Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Iran have been fighting their proxy wars there since the Second World War. It's it's a terrible spot to put your men at risk, but yeah, we're going to drone a terrorist or two. Yeah. Because as, as Charles points out, like the, the idea that America is the world hegemon might not sit well with a lot of people, but the, what we're, what we should be thinking about is not, is this good or bad, but is this good or is what would replace it good? Yeah. Yeah. And what, what would replace it? I mean, would, would Iran dominate that region? Would China dominate Asia? You know, would you know any number of dictators would would Putin be more powerful if America wasn't you know leading NATO to keep Soviet domination and now Russian domination out of Europe? You know, to the 
it, it's there there always will be and we had that foreign policy book a while back um by uh, duick there's always going to be a, a a strain of isolationism and i think both parties have it now it used to be more of a republican thing and then it was more democrat thing and now i think we're kind of i mean the president is, is both isolationist and not isolationist you know like a lot of it's confusing what he thinks on things generally yeah yeah but there's that strain, sure, because, you know, I mean, especially when it comes to actual troops dying in some country you never heard of for some fight that you don't really understand. So, is this what we should be doing with our, our men's lives? No, but also, you know, Cook points out, we have to balance that against – the world would be much worse if China was the global hegemon and we were just retreated behind our borders. Mm-hmm. But your, your illustration actually – or your example actually illustrates the – different points of departure though because you just described like do do we really want our our sons and daughters to die in in some some sandy desert somewhere far-flung quarters of the world that's a different point of departure than libertarians who are like we don't want anyone killed in the farthest quarter of the world (laughs) that's that's a good point yeah I'm, i'm dividing between occasional airstrikes and full-on troops and they're they're against both so yeah that's they're even more removed from that example so so it is a a good illustration of you can get to isolationism from from both first principles of libertarians and traditionalists traditionalists are would be more like hey american americans first and we don't want americans dying in some rice paddy in in asia or Mm -hmm. but libertarians would be like we don't want some we don't want a person, a human being, killed at all in some rice anywhere, you know. So, once again, it's like both admirable and it causes you to cock your head a little bit because <laughs> it's just a very unnatural, I would say, way of thinking about the world. But yeah, and he draws the same distinction you alluded to it earlier about about immigration. As much as, I mean, I think both sides favor immigration, and, and Cook himself is an immigrant, so he's clearly for immigration. But, you know, the idea that we should manage it, that we should have borders, that there is such a thing as America that's different from Canada or Mexico or any of the other countries, it doesn't sit right with a lot of the libertarians and a lot of the libertarian left also, you know, that we saw some crazy pronouncements in these Democratic primary debates, and we'll see how much of it sticks to Joe and, and, and Kamala now. But, you know, people talking about the border, you know, crossing the border illegally should be, you know, not a criminal offense. It should just be like getting a ticket for jaywalking. That's going to sound really crazy to a lot of people because most people think that, you know, while we should let people in, America is a nation that has borders and any nation that doesn't control its borders is no nation. It's just Mm -hmm. an imaginary line on the map that everyone can walk over. So, you know, libertarians would say, well, why do those people not deserve a shot at the American dream? Yeah, they would say it is an imaginary line that was created yeah. out of from social construct and it shouldn't be there, the, the more uh, extreme ones. Yeah, but it's also that sort of blank slate thinking of, you know, I, I, I hear libertarians saying, and it's, you know, if, if this were true, it would be less reason, less unreasonable, you know, that the problem is not immigration, it's, you know, the, the welfare state. And that if, you know, immigrants came over like when ours did and, you know, you came here, you worked, you assimilated. And if you didn't, you'd probably starve to death because there was nobody going to help you. There was no food stamp, no public housing, no nothing. You know, you 
it was a uh, was a wide open country. Okay, that that kind of limits immigration on its own because you have you know that if you're coming here, you got to work. And I think most yeah. immigrants still believe that you know, nobody's coming here to get benefits for the most part. But that's not the situation that prevails. You know, it's not, it's not like we'll open the border and then we'll repeal that welfare state. It's like whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, get rid of yeah. that welfare state first, then we'll talk, because you're not going to be able to do that. You know, the Democrats won't go for that. Most of the Republicans don't want to repeal all of it. You know, there's always going to be some of it. And meanwhile, if you're letting in people who can't work here, you know, who don't have the skills, or if you let in so many that there's just not jobs, that that's a real world consequence. That's a real world world trade off that's going to make life worse for them and for those who are already here. But. It's that utopian vision of, you know, Matty Glacius has a book coming out now about how we should have 1 billion Americans. Well, I don't know, maybe someday, but I, <laughs> I, I doubt it. I doubt that. And I haven't read it. It's, it's not out yet, but it's, I doubt it. His vision of how to get there is going to comport with conservatives or even most moderate libertarians. Or even Democrats, to be honest. Let's, let's yeah. Be honest. <laughs> a lot of Democrats voted for Trump because of things like having a border. Yeah. So this is another example of what what he's what he's getting at when he calls it logic on paper because you know if 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 there was no welfare state right. if we could go back to this if there was you know if all these ifs if it came to fruition then it would totally make sense to have open borders. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so again, you're like oh, all right, but you know like this is just a thought experiment. You know, it's not it, it doesn't. It doesn't translate into reality. But what Cook wants to do is combine these two, and he doesn't want the extremes of either. He doesn't want the extremes of logic on paper libertarians, and he doesn't want the extremes of of uh, conservatism, where of traditionalist conservatism, where if uh, if the Catholic Church said so in 1099, then we need to hold to it, you know, mm. after two thousand another thousand years. And, and that, that doesn't make sense. It, but then, of course, that is an, an active debate that we have going right now because we named some of our libertarian thinkers. Here's some of our traditionalist thinkers that we've we've covered recently. R.R. Reno, Sarab Amare, Patrick Deneen, Rod Dreher. You know, it's kind of interesting that these guys all happen to be Catholic. Um, actually, I can't remember if Reno is, but... He, he uh, is. Dreher's Orthodox now. But he was Catholic for a oh, time. Okay. But yeah, it's 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 all the old <clears throat> the old uh, churches. Yeah. So if Cook says, in combination, we have what should be a conservatarian Republican, and he gives some parameters of what that would look like. He says your politics are defined primarily by an interest in liberty. You are more motivated by equality of opportunity than equality of outcome. You want the state to be smaller and the basic structure of the American government to stay intact. You are interested in education reform. You are skeptical about the government's capacity to make significant changes to society, something we've talked about in many books. You think that man cannot be perfected. You are jealous of your religious liberties and your freedom of expression. You are pro-life. You are protective of the right to bear arms. So you go through this and you're like, yep, that sounds like a mainstream Reagan conservative. Mm -hmm. And so I guess maybe that's kind of what he's saying is, that's what a conservatarian is, is, but maybe with a little extra libertarian, I'm not sure, but more or less Reagan conservative is a conservatarian. Yeah, I, I thought of Cook as more of a libertarian writer, but um, reading this book, he, the conservative comes out more, I, I guess, it may be in opposition to the, to the pure libertarian. And that was kind of, kind of interesting to me because I, 
I feel like that's happened to me on this podcast too. As we read both sides, I end up more on the conservative side than I thought I was. Yeah, and I, I guess because we're we're not used to both parties sort of. Well, like we said, the Republicans talk a libertarian talk when they're out of office. Democrats occasionally get at it, mostly when it comes to drugs or sex, but they still, you know, they, they talk about liberties. But then when they're in office, you know, I mean, Obama's DEA wasn't any different than Bush's DEA. You know, they're both going after yeah. people growing weed in states that it was legal, you know. Yeah. So it's for all the talk on both sides about liberty on that point or, or for local control and federalism on that point, they don't do it, you know, and I... I haven't heard as much out of Trump's DEA. I mean, people are, tend to scream about different issues. Everyone's mad about the post office this week. But, you know, I don't think they've dialed back much either. I mean, they're probably just doing the same thing and having the same conflict between a federal law about growing a plant in your backyard that, you know, we've been having this fight since the New Deal. Not about drugs, but about, you know, the idea of, I just do something on my own property. How is that the federal government's business? But that's the sort of thing that makes you think libertarian. And that's one point maybe the libertarians are winning on. He goes through the war on drugs here in one of these chapters and talks about how it necessitates a big state in a way that I think even moderates find discomforting. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, the prohibition did the same thing. You know, it made that's when wiretaps got big. That's when a lot of, you know, of warrantless type actions, you know, exceptions, carve outs of the Bill of Rights, you know, to stop that booze, which was our biggest problem in the 20s, apparently. And, you know, now it's the same with drugs, you know, it's like, well, we've got to have this huge operation tapping every phone, following these guys around, you know, trailing cars, looking in houses with, you know, infrared. Why? Because somebody's, somebody's growing weed up in his attic. Yeah, the trade off is not one that I think even now, conservatives are starting to question it but uh yeah i kind of go off course on that but that's i think that's one part where the libertarian wing is winning yeah you started by by talking about basically the uh, culture and you know how the culture is moving in a much more libertarian direction and, and it should be stated like a liberal direction and libertarians kind of that's how they kind of split and are a little bit of both republicans and democrats in that they are as we've discussed in recent podcasts, very much in favor of lower taxes, less regulation. And so that fits with conservatism and Republicans. But they're also very much about cultural deregulation as well, like pure mm-hmm. uh, you know, individual freedom. And I, I, he has a chapter, chapter four, where he talks about the culture and begins it with Andrew Breitbart's quote about politics is downstream from culture. And he talks about, he says, professional, the professional left has a death grip on cultural life in America. And he, he gives these criticisms, which I think are right on point. It would have been more interesting if he maybe would have dived into how, how libertarianism like also plays into that. He, he kind of doesn't. And in fact, in this book, it is a little bit interesting and a little bit disappointing, actually, that in the first couple chapters, he talks about a conservatarian and the com- combination of traditional conservative and libertarian, but then he kind of basically abandons that for the rest of the book and just kind of talks about issues that were, mm-hmm. <laughs> that were prevalent in, I guess, 2014 and 15. But, uh, this is a great point as far as politics and whether it's downstream or upstream or sidestream of culture, whatever, I, I, I don't know about that, but I do know that as he says, 
the media and the education system, the university system, academia has a pervasive, if not total liberalism. Universities attract people of leftward disposition, while conservatives tend to cluster in fields like accounting or information systems, marketing, engineering. And I I, I thought this was good and, and, you know, very timely, like couldn't be more mm-hmm. timely now. I mean, we're the... If, if, if anything right now, there's just an absolute upheaval about culture and it's becoming clearer and clearer now what the mainstream media up to this point has, has had, I guess, uh, plausible deniability that they, that they weren't radical leftists. But at this point, you know, in the, in the wake of COVID and mm. George Floyd death, I, I don't think there's any plausible deniability about the me- the mainstream media or or academia at all. It's absolutely controlled by the left. And, and at this point they think they're the vanguard of the revolution. Yeah. It's uh, they used to, yeah, it, it used to be sort of a, a secret, you know, which side they were rooting for. And pe- they would even plausibly say, Oh, we don't take a side. We just report, but it's yeah. It, if anyone believed that four years ago, they don't believe it anymore. If they do, <laughs> they're a fool. Yeah. So delusional. Yeah. It, it, also rolls into his he's he's got a chapter on on the constitution and the founding and the narrative that even in even at that time this is like the the back end of the obama administration we hadn't even gotten to like the 1619 project and other other uh destructive critical theories but he says liberals believe we should not consider the american revolution nor the constitution as great because they failed to abolish slavery you know, the sins of the founding, that's the narrative. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's more true now than ever with statues being pulled down. And I personally don't have very strong feelings necessarily about statues per se, but I definitely have a strong feeling about let's completely whitewash our history and return to this utopian blank slate and say, this is year one of the the human organism or whatever, and not rec- <clears throat> recognize it all that we have a history and that we have a human nature. And it would have been cool again, if he would have discussed how libertarians feel about this versus like traditionalist conservatives. But again, he had, he had kind of abandoned that, but it would be interesting to see because I think libertarians would be just fine with a year one, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's utopianism always demands a year, uh, a year one, a year zero, whatever, you know, it's a, it's everything is new now, you know, and that's, well, it's not sustainable because we we all live in places where people already exist and have ideas. You know, maybe if they colonize Mars, yeah. Then, but then we're still bringing with us ideas. You know, I mean, I, you know, how to live and what's right and wrong is still in our heads, even even on Mars, we're not a blank slate. But I think that's what it would take to really, you know, we used to see in this country utopian colonies of Oneida and New Harmony and these places where people had come over either from Europe or from other parts of Americans are, we're going to do our, our cult here or, you know, whatever. And they, it's still, you know, after the first generation, they still ended up being like regular Americans, you know, because he, he, after the, that zeal of the, the first crew, who's going to do their year one, and, you know, we're, we're going to leave behind all the old doctrines, you know, and then they have kids and they're just like, uh, I just want to, you know, have a farm somewhere. <laughs> I'm not really mm-hmm. down with all the world's going to end tomorrow stuff. So, it, you know, how do you keep that up? That's utopianism fades. But I, I guess as we see now, there's always a new batch of utopians. 
Now they're, <laughs> now they're throwing things at the police in Portland for, I'm not even sure why they're out there anymore. It was, yeah, like it was initially about George Floyd. I don't know what it is now. Just communism. I don't know. Now it's just a tantrum being thrown by yeah. a bunch of kids. A bunch of kids who went to college and have a lot of good opportunities. Instead, they're, you know. Yeah, freaking out. All right, what's your closing thoughts? Well, I I, I think it's interesting um, to see, I, like you said in the beginning, the contrasting Cook's book with Meyer's book from a couple of weeks ago. You know, the fusionism that Meyer was calling for did work. I mean, it happened in the in the the, the media often would speak of the, you know, the, the right-wing civil war that's coming, and it never came because we realized conservatism and libertarianism overlap to a great degree, as Cook po- points out, and, and they need each other. So where is this going? I mean, is, is, is Trump going to change all that? Is the, the, the political reshuffling that's going on going to change all that? Because I think we've seen more conservative attacks on libertarianism in the past few years than we'd seen in decades before it. Mm-hmm. And we've read a lot of those books on here, like the ones you mentioned, like Reno and Deneen and some of these fellas. So I don't know. I think, um, is there still a place for a conservatarian? Yeah, I think there is, because I think most people fall in between extremes. And the overlap still is such that it separates us from the Democrats, who have even more different ideas than either of these two factions. So mm-hmm. I think uh, this this book is a good snapshot of that issue in 2015 and it's like the the last days before all we talked about was donald trump yeah (laughs) it was kind of refreshing in that respect yeah it had that feeling you know the the back end of the obama administration it doesn't account at all for 2016 or trump so of course on the other hand it felt very dated you know because it's talking about the capitol hill squabble squabbles of the day but which Mm. seem just so far away now but only five uh, so years, I, but yeah, it does. <laughs> it really does. This book, this book created more of a, a desire for me. I, I'd love to see a, a book on libertarianism that just kind of goes through the history. Maybe there, maybe there is one that we just need to find. Listeners, if, if there is one, why don't you send us a recommendation? Because to trace the history of, of libertarianism as we've traced conservatism and how they've bounced back and forth. Because as I've said in, a, in other episodes, I think libertarians used to be in the in the Republican coalition, and now they're increasingly, in my experience, they hate Trump, and they're more and more siding with Democrats. While at the same time, Democrats want more regulation of every aspect of life. So, um, which I, I find fascinating because the freedom of speech, I think, is. I mean, every everyone has their, I guess, their hypocrisies when it comes to freedom of speech freedom of speech that I like, uh, you know, every human is kind of susceptible to that. But I think, Mm. I think on the left it's worse and worse and worse and worse, far worse now than it ever has been on the right. All right. That's cook. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time.